0: This is episode number 45 with Joseph Mokanu, Managing Director of Verge. Welcome to the Masters of Cashflow podcast. My name is Andrew Senduk, a former banker turned tech entrepreneur. And in each episode, I interview the movers and shakers of the venture capital and investment space in Southeast Asia. With the only goal to help you discover how to raise more capital, build better companies, and to give you a better understanding of the people behind the biggest funds in the region. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Now let's get started. All right, beautiful people. Welcome to a new day, a new episode. Uh, I'm uh, excited to have across me Joseph Mokanu, safe and healthy in Singapore. And uh, we have been connected, I think, through LinkedIn. There were a few people who introduced us to each other. And I'm happy that we're sitting across each other because uh, when it comes to the, down to the different uh, verticals, different markets that you can invest in. I think health is definitely one close to my heart as well. Originally, a scientist with a PhD in medical biophysics, but eventually, you know, I want to highlight a few things. You were a senior principal at Oliver Wyman, big management consulting firm, where you were also already focusing on uh, in the health space as well. Uh, you've also had a stint in China uh, at DM Capital, and currently, you're the MD, you managing director of Verge Health Tech, which is a fund focused on health. Uh, innovations uh, currently 14 investments in and what you say on the website is i think the the truest uh, in life and which is uh, health is the world's greatest wealth and that is i think something that uh, that your fund is now trying to back as well with uh, with finance so uh, joseph welcome to the show happy that you're here how are you doing
1: thanks so much andrew for having me here um yeah can't complain and uh the sun is shining and uh you know, lots of things happening in the world right now. Some of these things are, you know, affecting me both personally and professionally. However, uh, I'm ever so grateful to be here today. Thank you. Okay.
0: Yeah. I think that is uh, definitely, we, we talked about it a bit pre recording, but uh, the world today is uh, it's a bit in chaos, you know, and we, Need to focus usually on the things that we can focus on and, you know, where we can help, we help. But for today, uh, we just want to focus on, on on the health space. We want to focus on the fund that you just launched and maybe something to start off with, um, you know, in our introduction call, you mentioned a bit kind of like the, the beginnings of, of Verge and and how it was to set up that fund from from zero. Uh, maybe you can bring us back a bit on, on how you, how a scientist, how a PhD, medical biophysics suddenly becomes a fund manager. What's kind of like been the whole... Journey in um, in the beginnings of verge.
1: Oh goodness! So this this I guess is a story dating back. If I do my math completely right here, fifteen years in the making. Um, although I think a lot of those fifteen years uh, were, were not quite so deliberate. Uh, my first encounter with you know my first encounter with the world of business or with with investors or anything came through a startup that I accidentally co-founded with a medical doctor while I was doing my PhD. And so we had this idea that you could perhaps uh, image the brain in real time using, using you know, just a, a number of electrodes placed all over your skull, like how a seismograph determines the epicenter of a an earthquake or rather an array of seismographs around the planet. And, uh, you know, that to prove that out, you needed money, um, and we managed to get an, an angel investment into that, and then we proved it, and then it was really about going to the next stage, figuring out what a business plan is like, what your market entry strategy would be like, which indications you go for, and these are all things as a as a scientist, I you know you never you never contemplate, uh, so that. Those sort of questions and that sort of line of thinking and then the kind of stakeholders you have to then talk to to try to get this idea to something that is real uh, really took me to the world of business. I had my first meetings with venture capitalists and thought, well, I really like what you guys are doing. We'd love to do this one day. And that led me to go to business school. It led me to you know work in private equity in China. It led me to discover management consulting as a way to be useful or value add to your investments and then came full circle when I actually had the opportunity to angel invest in companies, you know, so when I moved to Singapore now, almost eight years ago with my old firm, um, I had a chance, you know, I met these entrepreneurs that were trying to solve some really big problems in healthcare and they were having a heck of a time trying to raise this funding. Uh, you know, they were really, really early. So super risky, technical, regulated and in areas that are difficult to understand. So um, it, it's, it's of no surprise that it was a heck of a lot easier for an investor to just buy another piece of property or invest in the next e-commerce company. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, I thought, well, hey, um, I've got some extra capital now because, you know, I, I was getting pretty senior at, at my firm and I didn't really have too many expenses so I thought, well, I'll support these entrepreneurs. I'll write some angel checks. And that ended up being far more impactful and meaningful than writing, you know, really expensive PowerPoint slides that would more often not sit on an executive shelf and collect dust. So I, I, I wanted to know, like, how can I do this full time? And the challenge was at the time, there weren't any funds. And I still think there aren't. Uh, any funds that were really focusing on the first or second funding rounds of a company when it's in its like maximum risk Mm. Uh, and and wanted to do things that would impact the lives of everyone, not just people in, in wealthy economies. So not just focusing on, you know, how do we get the maximum profit margin or how do we you know, serve a, a captive but niche population, but really move the needle in healthcare, like how do we impact the lives of 10 million or 100 million people? Mm. And, uh, and then the lack of my ability to find a fund that did this led me to the conclusion that I must start my own, which was uh, quite, quite an interesting and terrifying and exciting experience.
0: It's, uh, it's almost now I think, like you said, sometimes as entrepreneurs, you, you look around, and look for certain solutions or products right and you don't find them so you just make them yourself and <clears throat> very applicable yeah. i think in your situation as well you said you didn't find that fund that actually looks or believes or has that investment uh, thesis that that you believed in so so what is that moment because there's a moment where you angel invest as a side gig you know because you still have your 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 normal quote-unquote job and then there's a moment where you say bye-bye job bye-bye safety Uh, I'm going to go full, full on, like head first into raising this first fund, which is super scary. There's no, no back backup plan. Like what, what was that transition from just doing angel tickets to eventually saying, you know what, we're going to launch this fund. I'm going to raise funds from LPs and we're going to do this uh, as a full-time job.
1: You know, it was, um, I I wish I could take full credit here on, you know, this transition being internally, internally driven, but it, it wasn't, um, what happened was as a as a management consultant i had just beat mckinsey on a really big project and for me that is kind of like david versus goliath kind of moment because you know mckinsey basically invented the industry and i and i really needed to level up like i needed some professional coaching and and all that to to see can I can I elevate myself to the next level where it's not just one big project, but it's multiple big projects that I can continue to, you know, beat the world's largest and most prestigious consulting firm. And so that led me on a, on a on a journey to search for, you know, professional leadership development programs or coaches that could help me up my game, you know, how to engage with senior executives, how to speak with more gravitas and all that sort of stuff. And I came across a group called Linhart and, um, you know, I, I, I met with them. And as part of the, you know, qualification process of whether, you know, this is the right fit for me, I had a two hour conversation with their founder, uh, Yen She, who used to be you know, the personal mentor of Dominic Barton at McKinsey and one of the top five rainmakers He he was at McKinsey for multiple decades before doing this. So I was really lucky to get two hours of his time during the course of which I realized that, you know, I was burning the candle at both ends and I had to make a decision. Initially, I thought, okay, I'll be, you know, successful management consulting partner. I'll just continue angel investing. You know, and and I'll do that forever and I'll use my own capital and I'll keep doing that until whatever. But I was already spending a pretty, pretty sizable amount of my time managing my angel portfolio because by then I'd already invested in in 13 angel investments, nine of which were were in health tech. So Mm. yeah, they kind of, they kind of snowballed a bit, eh? Mm. Uh, So if I kept doing this before I knew it, I'd, I'd probably have a portfolio of, uh, you know, 50 angel investments and, uh, you know, one foot in the grave because I wasn't sleeping enough. Or or I just do a really, or I just do like a really crappy job as a partner and I yeah. lose everything. So I have yeah. to make a decision. And, you know, when I thought about the fact that, you know, you, you never know what might happen. Like tomorrow you might get hit by a bus and what yeah. do you want to be remembered? Or what do you want to do? So yeah. I figured life is short too short to... Take an indirect path towards things, so I just mm. slept in I' am like okay, i got to do this full time how do I do this full time well I don't have money to do this full time, so I have to use other people's money to do this full time
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that is exactly the right description of a, of a VC fund right uh, using other people's yeah. money to uh, to to invest so as we go as we go into making the decision I think internally and then uh, like resigning from you know a high paying management consultant job and saying you know what we're going to go full on into this, like who were the first LPs or like, I don't know if you can share, but at least how did that process go of the first commitments that you got of people that said like, okay, I'm going to give you like hundred grand or, 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 whatever, whatever amount of that was like, was it really like the family and friends type around or would you go with like institutionals directly? Like how did you kind of like leverage and set the base for that first fund?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So my, my natural inclination would be, to go to my colleagues and my old boss, yeah, because uh, they knew they knew how I worked the best, and in fact, I had done some angel deals with them. However, there was the additional complication that informing my colleagues and my and my boss would jeopardize my bonus, which was sizable and which I was planning to spend on setting the fund up, and, and if I had any left, contribute to the funds, you know, as a as a GP. So. Okay. I couldn't do that. So the next best thing was, you know, I was part of an angel organization called Bansi, and there were a couple of fellow angel investors I was quite close with. And I, you know, I had to, I had to run like the smell test, you know, am I crazy? Like, Mm -hmm. am I crazy that I want to do this? And I happened to ask, uh, a couple of very optimistic friends of mine in the organization who said, yeah, you should go do it, go for it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, when I, When I gave notice at, at my job, then I could talk to my colleagues, and then you know they, they gave their support. So it was actually really my close friends, my old clients, my old bosses, my old peers that really served as the nucleus of yeah. of the first uh of the, of the first commitments, And they came so quickly that I had a sense of false confidence into how quickly the rest of it would show up. And uh, <laughs> needless to say, people who've known you for, you know, five to 10 years yeah. are going to be a lot faster at writing checks than people who don't.
0: Yeah, I think that, that, is, that is the whole thing, right? And then uh, it's almost like, uh, I think, with every sale as well. I mean, every sale that you do, sometimes there's this false hope or false expectation. It's, oh, I did the first 10 sales, so the next 20 is going to come in as easy as that. But it's kind of yeah. like not you keep on knocking on doors, you keep on like pounding those doors down. So after let's say the first family and friends committed money, um, how did you kind of like break through that? You know, okay, these guys they have known me for five years, for ten years. They they know they they trust me, right? But then suddenly you yeah. need to tap into that black book or tap into that network who don't know Joseph, who don't know how you work. How did you kind of like convince those guys to uh, to eventually come in?
1: um very poorly um but <laughs> so over 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 the course of this journey i figured out that investors make decisions based on two things it's really trust and interest trust and, and interest it, okay yeah yeah i mean are you relevant are you yeah. interesting to them are they are you investing in something that they could get on board with and relate to right and then the other one off ob- obviously is trust right mm-hmm. and so in hindsight, I could have done a much better job as to figuring out how to qualify which which investors would have you know had a higher chance of trusting me and and, and trusting the rest of the team with what we're trying to do, as well as being interesting to them. Hmm. Uh, and and really, it was it was basically almost all warm introductions, and it was really a you know who do you know? Um, okay, well can we, can we talk to them? And, and then those people, we get asked like, well, who do you know? You know, if we're not a fit, is there anyone who is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course the further, the further away you go from that core of, of trust and support, the more difficult that journey becomes. But sometimes you come across people that really get what you're trying to do and are, and are really on board, which, which is really quite amazing. And, and we were lucky to find those people. And, and the challenge is it's not at all obvious i mean if you are if you are dealing with a professional you know institutional investor or fund of funds with a very clear mandate, at least you can address that interest part of it pretty clearly uh trust will of course take time and depends on you know how you get to know them and how long it takes mm. but Private individual investors, their tastes are esoteric. There's no – like if you talk to a senior executive or a family office, it's not like you have a whole manifesto of what they invest in and what they don't invest in. Mm. It's it's a lot of guesswork. Yeah. So we have a lot of people who backed us as investors who you would have never have guessed. Mm. Mm. <clears throat>
0: yeah. I mean as an in institutional yeah. investor, you mean or are there just never yeah. –
1: no, just just network. So we don't we don't have any like any real institutional yeah. investors. Um, I mean, we 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 do have some family offices, and we do have like the actual principles behind some institutions. Yeah. Uh, but we're we're too small to you know to take the institutional money itself. And I, yeah. I think that institutions really are a fund two or a fund three or even yeah. a fund four sort.
0: Taking everything into consideration. I mean, a big, big congrats to you with, uh, with fund with this fund, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's it's worth the celebration. Uh, It is, it is a milestone, you know, it's a milestone that you've done that. So, so talking about fund number one, is there any specs that you can share like a current AUM and like where you're at on, on deployment of the fund or are you raising another fund? What's kind of like the status of the, of Verge at the moment?
1: Yeah. So, so our fund one is pretty modest. We're $7.6 U.S. million. Um, we are pretty much fully deployed. We have okay. some reserves that you know, we're keeping for a rainy day, but even those are now starting to, to come to an end. Because one of the other things that we were doing um, you know, to build a track record is we were investing and raising at the same time. So by the time we closed our fund you know, in late 2020, you know, we had already nine investments in our portfolio. That's amazing. Yeah. I think I
0: always talk about let's say the parallels between like startup life and, and VC life and and the thing about operating and fundraising at the same time, as in operating the business and fundraising at the same time is, is so applicable to to being a fund manager because you're you're operating, you're investing, and you're fundraising at the same time. It's 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 all very similar, right? So when you talk about the 7.6 million, you you only focus on health tech. What are the let's say what are the criteria for for Virg to jump in like usually what is the ticket size that you come in and what specific niches within the health tech are you are you focusing on
1: Sure I'll start with the easy question um our minimum ticket is typically two hundred and fifty thousand us dollars I think the largest we've gone in on to date is closer to 700000 700 all in so we're again we're're we're, we're pretty small right um, but that actually Can move the needle quite a bit when you're looking at the stages that we invest in, which is usually the first or second round of financing. So there are there are companies that we have basically, you know, spun out uh, as as the very first external funding that goes into that organization. Yeah. And then, there's a, you know, there's a couple where we've, we've come in kind of at the second round or, or slightly, slightly later, but that's really determined as a, more on the company's maturity and where they are in the life cycle. And we tend to come in on a very, very early side. So then in terms of niches, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, necessarily, say, I wouldn't necessarily say a niche, but we have a couple of requirements and some of which might be non-obvious. Uh, the first requirement is it's got to be technology. You know, we we don't invest in brick and mortar, and we don't even have the deep pockets to to bother with brick and mortar, anyways. But mm-hmm. if we're going to change healthcare, it's got to be exponentially scalable, and the only way you can do that is with a strong technology core. Yeah. So we will invest in you know platforms uh, like be it telemedicine, telespeciality, digital um, digital therapeutics or we can also do lightweight internet of thing medical devices and screening technologies because again you know by the time you're in a hospital it's a very one to one sort of relationship mm-hmm. and it's very yeah. capital intensive and a lot of the places that we're trying to move the needle on don't really have all that much infrastructure so again if we're trying to move the needle for everyone then we've got to think about the 4 billion people that don't have proper access to yeah. healthcare
0: yeah so true if you look at their portfolio right now, let's say the 14 investments, apart from technology and apart from, let's say, you know catering to a huge market, uh, is it possible to even like uh, categorize these these uh, these fourteen investments right now?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean the the easiest way to say it is, is it hardware or software? That's the first filter, right? And right now we're at seven and seven. it's half hardware, half okay. software Okay, oh, that's cool. That's great. Right. Cool. In terms of geographic breakdown, we're across five continents. So we have invested in, you know, if I were to kind of go down the list, U.S., Canada, Colombia, um, U.K., Finland, Poland, Estonia. We we have an investment actually in Belarus, which is uh, kind of worrying us right now. However, we did redomicile it all to Estonia. Um, but it's, you know, their their commercial activities, you know, their first revenue market was Russia. So that's. Wow. That's a concern, but again, yeah. that's one out of fourteen. Yeah. You know, we've got investment in South Africa, and Vietnam, and Singapore, uh, and Taiwan. So, uh, you know, so we're fairly diverse from a geographic footprint, but they all must address a significant problem. Yeah, and and I think when it comes to our our software mentality or a platform mentality, we want to serve regions, and then the hardware should be globally applicable. So, if we're detecting you know, signals from our lungs or or signals from our heart, like we all have hearts no matter where Mm, we live. mm, Right? More or mm. or 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 less worth
0: Yeah. That's very interesting. And I and I think um I I've been talking to a few a few guests and we talked more about let's say the cloud, right? And how the cloud enables enables any venture to kind of like globally operate and have markets across across the globe. As a let's say trained management consultant, uh, you know uh, who are who is very good at at making PowerPoint decks, like you said. And you know, I say this with a bit of a smile because coming starting my career at Deloitte, I I know that creating PowerPoints for big corporates is it's not always being used. You know, everything that you do is not always being used. Maybe it's just collecting dust. How do you approach now, like looking at like pre-investing, right, in your own due diligence process? Like what type of quote-unquote management consultant skills or what type of strategy skills are you using before actually writing the check? What's kind of like your... How does your DD process look like?
1: Yeah, so I, I would say that our portfolio construction, while it looks a little bit disparate, is strategic in nature and that we look for complementarity within the portfolio. And in fact, our portfolio companies do actually work with each other. And that was... okay. Kind of, we, we didn't impose it, but we kind of really hoped that this would naturally emerge and we're delighted that it actually is uh, naturally emerging. But in terms of frameworks, I mean, look, everyone will say they they look for team, they'll look for market opportunity, they'll look for the edge, and they'll look for, you know, governance, right? Mm-hmm. It's really, I guess, the nuances of taking a double click deeper to say, okay, well, which aspects do we care about more than others? So, um you know on the team side we're we're heavily biased towards the missionary type as opposed to the mercenaries so we really really ask the founders like why are you doing this and we really want to understand the why like if you're doing it just for the money sure you might be very successful right but when things get tough are you going to are you going to stay by this company or are you going to jump onto the next shiny object mm. and nice op- but you know sometimes knowing when to quit might be uh, might be good you know going down with the ship might not be necessary but it, at least in our in our kind of bias we, we do really look for that mission driven founder because look health tech is hard is harder than pretty much every other domain that I think of maybe maybe space tech is also probably harder but you know it's going to be a 10 plus year journey and it's going to have probably more downs in and- as ups yeah, yeah doesn't, sure. that doesn't make it, that doesn't make it any less worthwhile to pursue, um but we do want to find those founders that are that are really dedicated to this and really want to make a big difference and and if you if you think about why startups fail, it's because founders quit yeah, yeah. that's the number one reason now now running out of money is usually a pretty big driver as to why a founder <laughs> quits, yeah 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, but it's true. I, I love that. Uh, I love that
0: distinction actually between uh, missionary and, and mercenaries. I think it's a really good one, because as long as that why is so strong and the mission is so big, then they'll go through thick and thin, and you know, through every season, they'll just fight for for the bigger cause, which which yeah. is beautiful. Which is beautiful, man. You know, I I, I really understand. Like, if you just look at your journey, I understand this 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 yield towards towards health and. And and uh, creating that investment thesis, like how was that? Because because at the end of the day, I mean, there's so much capital flowing around, right? And there's a lot of quote unquote LPs or potential LPs who are just waiting to 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 put their money into either directly into startups or maybe into funds. How did you experience like um, having a unique proposal, you know, when when fundraising? Because I can imagine. That oh, there's another guy here that wants to raise another fund, right? There's another there's there's another health tech guy. There's another fintech fund. Or how how did you experience that? Was that was that very difficult to to kind of like break through and find your find your position in the market amongst all the other funds that are that are also investing in health tech?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, I think we were actually quite uniquely positioned and maybe that was a bit of naivety as well on our behalf because i mean i don't know whether our strategy is going to work or not seems to be but back then there's no way to no way to know um so there are a lot of healthcare funds a lot let's let's not let's not mince this uh <laughs> you know there are incredible amounts however they tend to be larger mm. And they tend to be more focused on more profit generating solutions or at least the um, impression of more profit generating solutions. Because one of the things we might find surprisingly is that some of the things we think are very impactful end up printing a lot of money. Um, but they'll, they'll go after, you know, the, the kind of more sexy stuff like the cures to cancer, you know, regenerative medicine, you know, stopping aging with biotechnology that, that sort of cool stuff, which you then read the news headlines of, Hey, blockbuster drug made $5 billion this year, or, Hey, imagine you were a seed investor in Moderna. That would Mm. be amazing. Right. Mm. Mm. Uh, I think was it, they made over $30 billion off the COVID vaccines in in the past year. That's that's a lot. Right. So, so a lot of funds are gravitating towards the hard life sciences or they might be later stage. Or if they are earlier stage, they'll either not be as vertically focused on, uh, you know, they might be like a deep tech fund or they might be like regional or country specific. So for us, to our best knowledge, we are still the only truly global seed stage health tech fund. And on top of that, we have a double bottom line objective in that we – don't just look for financial returns, but we also look for societal impact.
0: Yeah, I like that. I love that. I love that. It's it's funny, right? I mean, I think it's, as as VCs, as VCs, I mean, you are a startup yourself, and, and and of course, one of the main goals of this startup is to to bring uh to bring also a good IRR and, and to to give the money back to your LPs, right? Besides besides the impact, of course, that you are that you are funding. But you said something very interesting, which I think is, is, I think maybe always a bit of a balance, right? When, when, when you're an investor, are you investing in the quote unquote, shiny, hip and happening verticals, which are maybe more profit driven versus the maybe not so obvious, not so obvious verticals, not so obvious startups, not so obvious entrepreneurs, which on a short term, maybe will not create that ROI. But will have a deeper impact. Like, how do you how do you balance these two? Because you still have the you know your scope of work is still also about optimizing IRR. It's still about giving back the money of the LPs with a return.
1: So how do you how do you balance those two? I have a question. When 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 times are tough, and they will be at some point, we were in the longest bull market in in our generation until we weren't suddenly. Um, When times are tough, would you rather have three customers or three million customers? like three really high paying customers Mm. or 30 million, you know, small paying customers. That's, that's one question that I, Mm. that I have. It's not an argument I get to really articulate too often because usually it doesn't get to this either, you know, you, you believe it or you don't. And and typically it's difficult to change people's minds on these things. But one of the ways we kind of mitigate this is look, we are fundamentally value investors, which, doesn't sound like it's compatible with venture, but if you look back, you know, to the 1970s, the first venture investors were still value investors Mm -hmm. and they believed in absolute value. And they were, yeah, there's a heck of a lot of risk, but how do you mitigate that risk? You mitigate it by getting it at a point where you're comfortable with that risk and you think that you're paying the right price for it. Mm. So by virtue of there not being too many investors that do what we do or want to do what we do, we generally get to avoid all this bubbly valuations that you yeah. get in, say, B2B SaaS. Mm. That's one mitigator. The the other one to realize is that all it takes is one policy decision to collapse the entire life sciences VC mm. industry. Mm-hmm. One decision. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, if you look at where most branded pharma revenue comes from on the planet, U.S., simple, mm-hmm. right? So if U.S. is responsible for 50 to 90 percent of the revenue of a, of a large player and it gets more concentrated, the more niche you get in the earlier stage you get, because, you know, again, you're going after, let's say, 10 orphan drug patients and, you know, it's good. I'm glad that these solutions exist, but mm. you're going to you're going to see that the U.S. might be providing 100 percent of your revenue. Mm. So what happens if they decide not to spend 20 percent of their GDP on healthcare yeah. anymore? Yeah, Yeah, you're screwed. And who's got the biggest target on their back? Is it the doctors who are, you know, the human beings that are treating your patients or is it the faceless, nameless entities, which you feel might be profiteering.
0: Mm, mm,
1: mm. And that is a huge, huge elephant in the room. Mm. And so what's going to be more resilient in that scenario, is it going to be an expensive biotech drug or is it going to be a basic, you know, digital health or diagnostic tool that is still going to, you know, increase efficiency or reduce costs for the health system?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's and I think we talk about that. It's more this is part of the infrastructure instead of it's just a shiny object which is being used maybe in a certain season or, you know, so I think that's a that's a really good uh, good way to look at that. So uh, talking about. You know, so global investor, global global investor. You know, in several countries. Uh, what do you have any investments in Indonesia right now, or
1: not yet? We'd love to. We okay. almost did. Okay. We okay. Almost, okay. Term sheet signed, but we we just couldn't we couldn't go through with all of it. And it's actually okay. the only term sheet we've ever had to withdraw from, which pains me. Oh. And, no. and I, I I do hope the company does. Uh, you know, is wildly successful because I think they were on a good mission. It just mm-hmm. couldn't. Uh, yeah, we couldn't get everything lined up
0: okay okay so it's still in the, it's still a white canvas as as of today
1: absolutely i mean indonesia is the largest market in southeast asia the largest population yeah. i've been to you know places outside of jakarta and outside of bali and i see that there is absolute need but there's also absolute opportunity
0: yeah yeah no for sure i mean we've talked about this before as well but i, I really believe that health is you know if you talk about be you know your life. Should have an impact, right, on other our people, and I think if if it's through health, I think that is a great channel to uh, to realize realize that goal.
1: Um, health, health, and education, man, health and yeah. education. Don't yeah. know anything about education, so I'm doing health then.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So what are what are the main lessons that you've learned so far of of being an investor?
1: Main lessons. Oh, there's so many lessons. Um, I think I think the most important thing about investments at least that i take away from is approach it as a problem solving exercise mm. you know approach it of how can how can we create value together what are some of the big challenges to solve and how do we go about solving them that is not intuitive especially from the perspectives of most investors to say how do i balance my portfolio to maximize returns yeah exactly. that's just. exactly. There, there, there are, of course, lots and lots of different kinds of investors out there, but I find that our, our most honest and most productive conversations and best decisions come from when we take a problem-solving approach to things. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, that is all theoretical because we're so early in our life cycle, but nothing's exited and valuations, sure, they'll go up but it means nothing because they can go down as well, Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so true. So true. So true. And that, that's all, but, that, but yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, those valuations can go up and yes, it can go down at the same time, but, uh, for VCs, uh, that, that's why sometimes there's, there's a bit of a tension there, right? Between, between like yeah. investing, creating value, creating, creating paper value, VCs exiting, getting actually good returns on that, on that valuation. But bottom line, the business is actually bleeding. Bottom line, the business, product market fit is not good. Go to market fit is not good. So I think that, that brings me back actually to this topic of, of, of added value, right? Added value besides money. Like yeah. how, are these, how are you as an investor really helping this customer unlock growth? Well,
1: well, everyone on our team, we've all been entrepreneurs. We've all done startups. Yeah. Uh, so we understand the journey. We understand the challenges. We understand the emotional journey. Like, yeah. you know, you have extreme amount of pressure I mean, you as a founder could be doing something else with your life. If you're married, if you have a family, you know, the pressure of providing for them while trying to build something new is immense. So yeah. you know, the last thing we want to do is create more problems for them and give them more stress. We want to be there to to support them. Um, but, a, but that's a very wishy-washy answer to, to your question. Tangibly, you know, we've been in industry. We know the top pharma players. We know the top insurers. You know, some of the tech companies. We're all strategists. We've all been investors ourselves previous to starting the fund, so you know we can certainly help them with their R&D strategy, their market entry strategy, their corporate strategy. We help them with you know recruiting. We look for talent. We find their board members. We find them downstream investors. Like a a lot of it is actual. Rolodex. And, and that's probably what a lot of investors do, but I think we do some things at a greater depth. I mean, mm-hmm. one of our team members worked for Apple for three years and worked with, you know, hundreds of OEMs around the planet to make sure that, you know, the product works. So we're not afraid of hardware. We're not afraid yeah. of supply chain. We're afraid yeah. of pleasure. So we took one of our companies on a factory tour to three different factories in two different countries,
0: wow. you
1: know, so, you know, with, with IP, we, we actually, you know, have, tangible experience working with certain firms. So we'll, we'll recommend them not because we heard they're good, but because we know they're good.
0: Yeah. 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 I love that. That's why I always love operator led funds. There's not so much. Yeah. I mean, the slide there's is not- good, right? The slide is good. And what you try to sell is good, but you've actually like walk the walk and, you know, you can actually bring value.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's not enough of them. Um, not enough of us actually operator led yeah. funds. Yeah. find a lot of fun outside of the U S and outside of China are, are really populated by, you know, financial sector people, which is yeah. necessary at a certain point. Yeah. But before you have a product, it doesn't make sense to talk about numbers unless in you you're, you're talking in the broad, broad stroke, what is the opportunity, but any yeah. projection, any, any financial model, it's garbage, it's wrong. No matter what the numbers are, they're wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that is so true. So true. I mean, uh, that brings me back to those days where you know everyone makes those slides of them, and uh, you know you, you can put numbers in there, but how much are you actually generating? How big is your client database actually? How many people are recurring, recurring payers for your product? Right. No, that is so. That is so true. So Joseph, if we look at if we look at the health space and the specific VC investments for the health space, right? For the health health tech in general. How do you kind of like look at the market in the coming coming five years from now? Just thinking about the amount of capital that is that is going into the region, but also thinking about just the the global economic situation that we're in right now. How do you kind of foresee that the VC investments within health tech uh, are evolving in the coming five to ten years?
1: Yeah, it's a, it, a good question. Um, I don't like predicting the future, but I guess in this case, I'm being asked directly to do it. I think you'll see a consolidation. I mean, we've had a Cambrian explosion of health tech companies around the world. And, you know, it's nothing like a global pandemic to show you the importance and the need for doing things differently in healthcare. Some of them will survive, some of them won't. And the survivors will either be surviving on their own or they'll merge or get rolled up by similar companies looking to expand vertically or horizontally, you know? So I do think we'll see a a pretty big consolidation of things. I think our foundational like layer one technologies of let's say, you know, e-pharmacy or telemedicine or, or electronic health records, I think the category winners have probably already been born. So with that, then how do you invest in second order and third order effects Mm. like what are those market or category leaders going to need to maintain their edge and what technologies would you be supporting then as a consequence Mm. Mm. what middle layer needs to exist you know what you know what disease areas haven't been adequately addressed but are still significant enough which are the harder problems which you know given the low-hanging fruits being picked what, what what's the mid level of fruit or the high level of or I guess the high altitude fruit that you need the ladders for. Yeah, So that's that's where we're going. And then the other way to ask that question is, uh, what do we want to see happen in the next five to 10 years? And that's where I think, especially as early stage investors, we kind of have this responsibility to define the future because it's really our supporting or not supporting of these companies when they're at their formative stages that really determines the future in which we live. And that's a great responsibility. So, I I hope to make the right calls. The one thing I do hope is that we see a continuation of high quality diagnosis at a distance. Mm. So, you know, right right now, um, we do have telemedicine capabilities, but what we're missing is quality telemetry that goes along with that video conversation. So, you and I, like, let's say you're a doctor and I'm a patient. You ask me a bunch of questions, and you're relying on my answers to make your yeah. decisions. Yeah. But what if what if I'm not fully aware, or what yeah. if I, for whatever reason, want to lie to you? Yeah. You know. So how do we how do we get the next generation of technologies? I mean, we have a great consumer proliferation of yeah. you know tech, like your yeah. Fitbits, and yeah. Apple watches, and that's going to give you a piece of the picture, but not all of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I love so that. how do we? How do we improve this? Also financing models. How do we make sure that the incentives are in place, that this is making financial sense for everybody involved? Mm. You know, and the the financing models certainly have to change. I think in the U S it's nice to see that a lot of procedures were reimbursed remotely and that you actually have insurance codes for the remote management of patients in Germany. You have like Diga, where they'll reimburse digital technologies in Taiwan, they're working on a, a framework for reimbursing digital health at a national level. Still, I don't think it's been applied just yet. So, how do we how do we make sure that this becomes more commonplace and that we have a fair uh, a fair financing system that doesn't require a lot of out of pocket spend or mm. allocation of resources? Mm. So that's that's another one. The third one is uh, the thing I really wish to see is a common language. Just to make sure that all these different platforms and peripherals and all that can talk to one another and actually can integrate to create a holistic image of your health status yeah. And very few countries in the world have gotten this right
0: yeah so much to uh to improve right when we talk about health i mean it reminds me a bit of of like here in indonesia i think I think uh when we talk about incentives like within this within the like all the stakeholders of the of the of the of the medical chain let's say i think there's there's still a lot of things that are quote-unquote broken which result in you know doctors prescribing certain medicine which maybe they do because of monetary incentives you know that type of thing and yeah i think there's that's yeah, a beautiful thing if you can if if through fine through funding you can actually optimize this chain so that you know people's Uh, welfare, people's, not welfare, people's wellness, people's wellness, health just increases.
1: Yeah, amazing. They're not easy problems. They're they're ridiculously hard problems.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because they're so deep-rooted, I think, also so deep-rooted, like when we talk about, let's say, that value chain, just the simple thing is, you know, maybe you have a headache, you go to the doctor, and a simple thing like that, I mean, there's so many triggers, so many agendas, so many agendas from stakeholder to stakeholder, which... Direct the decisions of, of a doctor that's prescribing you medicine A, you know? Yeah. Where, where in the Netherlands, for example, it will be maybe they don't prescribe anything because they see, like, yeah. okay, that's not necessary.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It even gets even further. Um, if you don't want to get sick, then there's a lot of things you can do in your life that would give you a better chance of not getting yeah. sick, like making yeah. sure that you eat right and exercise yeah. and sleep yeah. enough. That if you just go even to the diet section of this, the oh, wow, wow. problem is well yeah, most of us uh we're and you know, I'm guilty myself. I mean I'm not I'm not the most fit or trim guy, but you know, we eat a lot of carbs. Yeah. Yeah. Like refined carbs. Yeah. And you know, that's that's not really good for you. And the problem <laughs> is yeah. refined carbs are super cheap. I mean, it's yeah. a yeah, lot so more true. Yeah. So how do we how do we then shift that, or how do we how do we invest in making sure that what we put in our bodies is yeah. of the highest quality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are really scary. Like these are scary big problems. Or how do we make sure that you know we have enough time in our day to get that needed exercise, or have yeah. the right infrastructure and facilities hmm. to overcome our natural inclinations to just sit on our butts for twelve hours a day? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, so true, so true, so true. Hey Joseph. Uh... I want to ask the final question of the interview. I think I expect a big answer from you, by the way, Uh, especially what we discussed so far. Uh, I want you to imagine a day far away into the future, right? Far, far away into the future. And um, there is a search engine, which let's just assume the name is Google. And in this search engine, I'm going to click the name Joseph Mokanu, And um, there is no digital footprint whatsoever there's no verge website there's no linkedin there's no there's no Trill on facebook or whatever there's actually nothing except for three bullet points and these three bullet points they represent your life lessons that you want to be known for what would those three life lessons be
1: three life lessons my goodness you've given me the hardest question i've ever (laughs) podcast this is great um I do want to do the question justice so three bullet points to be remembered by outside of the work outside of everything I just want to be remembered as somebody who was consistent and persistent in my goals somebody who was trustworthy and ethical and somebody who's still alive and actively hiding his uh, internet footprint, so he has his privacy maintained. <laughs> I love <laughs> that. I love that. He increased his own health span, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the health span of millions of others of people. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly, exactly, exactly. That will be a nice, uh, a nice line with the fund as well. No, I love that. I love that. That's beautiful, uh, Joseph. Um, I want to thank you so much. I want to salute you for the fact that through Verge, you are impacting. You know millions of people with the technologies that you're funding. So thank you for that. I'm excited where Verge is going to evolve into with fund number two or fund number three that is, that is happening in the years ahead. And uh, I want to appreciate you for, uh, for the time that you've spent with me, sharing your experience and, and, and sharing your experience with the listeners as well. Uh, so thank you so much. And I hope to see you, uh, I hope to see you in Bali.
1: Thanks so much, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure and, and appreciate the opportunity to, to share our story and our, and our vision for what healthcare should be and, and hopefully will be in the, in the coming years. Uh, have a wonderful day and I can't wait to get to Bali soon. Awesome. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Masters of Cashflow podcast. If you found this episode valuable, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a rating and review and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.